Hi, this is Ron Carucci, author of Rising to Power, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best. Are you someone who's eager to step into a position of higher responsibility in your company? Certain that you want to and are able to make a greater contribution if you'd just be given the chance? Well, that may be the case, but for heaven's sake, take this step only after you've done your research, and that can start as you listen to this interview with my guest, Ron Carucci, who analyzed thousands of senior executive responses to tough questions and wrote about it in his book, Rising to Power. Our interview is a no-holds-barred discussion of some of the big risks inherent in a senior management role and how to avoid some of the traps that trip up the unprepared. Making a difference at this level of responsibility is a dangerous journey, yet it can be remarkably rewarding. And I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Bringle, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Ron Carucci. Ron is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent. He works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He's a former faculty member at Fordham University Graduate School, as an associate professor of organizational behavior, and has served as an adjunct at the Center for Creative Leadership. Ron is the author or co-author of eight books, and he's here to talk about his most recently published book, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives, written with colleague Eric Hansen, and based on interviews with over 2,600 high-performing senior executives. He lives and works in the greater Seattle area. Welcome, Ron. Bill, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Ron, great to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Alvin Toffler of all people, huh. the futurist, was a favorite. I, I loved, I was mesmerized when he would speak on television or talk about the future. I was fascinated by the, the things he, I don't know that I understood what he was doing in terms of his own pattern recognition, but I was fascinated by his beliefs about <clears throat> what he was seeing, especially given that many of his predictions came true. So he was always a, an intellectual hero of mine. What's one of the beliefs that you still remember today that he shared with you and influenced your own beliefs with? That power was shifting. That the reality that, well, that there was at some point that the first one was that the, the future was going to be bringing so much change we could fail that we couldn't absorb it. That it was going to be overwhelming to be able to find a way to adapt to the amount of change coming our way. And that was even before the technological revolution in the 70s. He knew that. And given that my whole life has been about helping people through change, um, understanding that there is a limit to the absorption rate people can adapt to has been a really important part of how I've had to shape my practice and my work. Well, we are now, you know, in 2010s and we live in an accelerated time of leaders and organizations feeling the pressure to solve problems and close deals and develop their talent bench. When you set out to write Rising to Power, what were your top three guiding principles about organizational leadership and how did they change as a result of doing the research and writing? So I think the, the, the book started out in a very personal way. We've known for more than 20 years that more than half of those appointed to broader roles in their communities, where it doesn't matter how big your organization is, when you take on broader levels of responsibility and further reaching influence or leadership, um, more than half of those people fail in the first 18 months. Um, and, and when a CEO client of ours, a very large food company in the West Coast, 
called and said they were letting somebody go that we had promoted. Um, I had gotten a phone call two hours earlier from that gentleman who we all saw as promising, with great potential, knew he'd leave his mark. When we finished a major transformational project, he was going to be given a larger job. Nobody was shocked. And then nine months later when he called me, I assumed he was calling to check in, but he'd been let go. And when the CEO called two hours later to tell me the same thing, painfully, more than subtly inferring that some of the responsibility for his failure was ours for not better preparing him which devastated me. And so I asked if we might come back into the organization to, to sniff around to say, how, what could have gone wrong here? How could we have so misjudged his potential or so miscalculated what we saw in his talent? And that short investigation into the organization uh, and began to realize all of the landmines that were put in his way uh, to impair his success are, is what led to our 10-year study. To, we wanted to go dig out more to realize that in fact, the organizational obstacles put in people's way on their way toward broader leadership are pervasive. It's a wonder any of them succeed, uh, much less half of them. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was personal. So I think all through the, the process, uh, to answer your question about what were our guiding principles, I, we kept the faces of those promising leaders in mind at all times. And I think the greatest accolades the book has received and the greatest honors and awards the book has received is because it speaks so poignantly and so directly to aspiring leaders, to people who want to have influence. And has, it has saved careers. It has prevented derailment. It has guided people through very sticky political waters um, to broader purchase. So I think uh, the principles about writing it for those people and those people only have been, very, have re been rewarded by the, the very positive and inspiring testimonials they've given us about how it's helped. Well, I think that you've just uncovered kind of a, a Pandora's box where people say, my gosh, leaders have it so easy. And really what you're exposing is the fact that no, they are, it is, the environment is almost set up to, for failure. What are some of the obstacles that are set in place? And then what positive purpose have they served the organization? Typically, whenever we look at organizational behavior or individual behavior, we always look to see what the positive intent of having some structure, policy, or practice in place. Do you follow where I'm going with that, Ron? So here's a great example, Bill. So right in the very process of selecting leaders, what leader or HR department today isn't saying that they can't get enough talent in, they can't get the recruiting done. Even in 2018, with as much behavioral science knowledge as we have, we're still using the least two reliable devices for selection, the interview and the resume. But we still do it. Um, and we'll say things to promising talent in the interviews, like, wow, look at all the brands you've built in your career. That's what we need. Or, oh my gosh, you've turned around two supply chain organizations. That's what we need. Or my goodness, what an incredible technological background you have of building these apps and technologies. We need you to do that for, that's the very thing we're looking for here. And in those messages, we are setting them up because uh, what we're saying to them is, you have a recipe, you have a formula. We'd like you to repeat your success here and dangerously setting them up to try and reach back for a recipe and slap it on our context without understanding the context. Um, and so rather than drawing wisdom from their past experiences, they're drawing an approach. And they come in and start slapping that formula on the organization. And of course, the organization resists, and then they, they slap harder. And then their diagnosis becomes an indictment. 
right? So they, they, they start with this mythical mandate to come repeat their past success. And when they take the bed of that mandate and it doesn't work, they indict the organization with statements like, I can't believe you people have made money or you didn't tell me it was this bad. We've all heard those stories. And then at that point, the organization slowly begins to back away. And before the person's had even a shot at making a difference or being helpful, the support of the organization is being withdrawn and they're dying a very slow death. We've all seen it happen and it's so painfully common. And it really is falling prey to a very common blame game where the executive coming in is kind of like an organ transplant that's being rejected by the host. We, and we actually, Bill, we call it organ rejection. We call it, <laughs> let's avoid organ rejection here um, because it, it's so common. And, and the failure point is the, is the leader and the organization together failing to say, you will have as much to adapt in yourself as the organization has to adapt, adapt to you. If you're and not, you have to go native, you don't have to go native and you know, become part of the landscape so you can create change, but you can't be such an outsider and such an abrasive force that the organization doesn't trust you or can't accept your need. Nobody knows how bad things are more than the people who are already there. Sure. You bludgeoning them with that information does you no good. It's really a naive way of how organizations change, where it ranges from, I sent them an email, they should be doing it now. <laughs> right. <laughs> to bringing in you know, your favorite consulting group and saying, make it better, rather than looking at what the underlying causes are of why, there's, why a process is dysfunctional or relationships are non-functional. So many leaders don't want to do good diagnostic work. Treatment without diagnosis is malpractice. But those leaders, they want quick, they want quick answers. They want silver bullets. Um, even though we have enough data, they've read enough cases about ch failure change to know they don't work. Um, doesn't stop the human nature from wanting them. Usually their diagnostics have partial truths, right? But they're not systemic thinkers. They're not looking at holistic issues or root causes. And so, so often the, the root cause pain of a symptom you're feeling lies far from the pain point. You may be feeling the pain in sales and marketing, but the origins are back in supply chain. Or you may be feeling the pain point at your innovation site, but the pain point is actually back in your analytics and IT group. And so, you know, if you're not willing to look at the holistic picture of an organization, you're going to inevitably misdiagnose what you're seeing, and then you're going to put in place solutions that won't last. Ron, I imagine that a lot of the consulting work that you do at Navalent is helping organizations that suspect that they don't have the whole truth help them see the whole truth or sufficiently more of the truth to understand how to proceed accordingly. Can you give us an example of an organization you worked with that was struggling with this and how you helped them get a better grasp on the change that was needed? Yeah, so we were working with a very small, just past the startup phase of a, a, a um, clean energy company uh, in California. And they were a compilation of multiple acquisitions. So uh, a set of folks were looking to collapse the value chain of the clean energy market uh, and, and integrate an end-to-end -end set of solutions. And of course, you just can't lump together four disparate little startups and wave a magic wand, sprinkle your grow-up pixie dust all over them and say, great, now you're a company. And when they initially contacted us, they believed, and they were facing some real um, turmoil on some of their very large and visible projects because these four integrated organizations were not able to integrate their methodologies. They had different cultures. There were turf wars. Um, there were identity crises happening within those small entities as they sort of yielded to this larger thing. Mm. And they wanted, us, they wanted us to come in and map processes. 
and said if we just had standardized approaches that we could write down in a manual, then we could hold people accountable for doing it the same way. And we said, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's an interesting theory. Uh, it, it won't work. Um, you'll make things worse. Um, you are not built to be one company. You are built to be four lumped together companies. Uh, and you're asking me to put duct tape and chewing gum and, and glue at your seams and make it you know, look like a, a company. It's going to look like somebody's had way too much cosmetic surgery with too many nips and tucks in their face. You don't need a consultant for that. You need a magician. And that's not us. So we walked away and said, no, we really can't help you. But that night, the CEO, after we met with the CEO and the president, called back and said, we decided we want to work with you, which shocked me because I thought these guys just don't get it. They don't want to hear the truth. Um, they were a little bit belligerent in their uh, in their sort of conversations. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. We don't need to be, help them. And I said to the CEO, that's interesting. You've ch chosen us after you'd unchosen us. Can you help me? I'm interested how you got there because in the process of trying to convince you, we could help you. You convinced us you were the wrong client for us. Mm -hmm. um, so help me understand now why I should be convinced otherwise. And uh, he gave a great, he was. He said he learned. He, he said he realized that they, a more holistic approach was going to better them, but they needed to look at this for the long term. And uh, he and suddenly he became a really nice guy and a smart, sharp, engaging man, and it was really kind of enjoyable. And uh, we then proceeded to bring in a holistic set of solutions to design an organization that could become that really be an end-to-end -end integrated solutions provider that would that kept the best of all four of the original entities, but integrated one company, and then not just try and cobble together a makeshift organization out of the four of them, but to actually build something brand new from the bottom up and then move into it. And that's what we did. And was it based on their vision, based upon the assets that they had acquired? Where did you make your starting point for designing the ideal company? Uh, from a strategy, right? So all good organizational work starts with strategy and naming their differentiators and naming the things they wanted to compete on compete against and naming why in the clean energy space that was becoming a very cluttered market, especially in the West Coast, why and where, when other end-to-end -end solution providers in this space were failing and not making money, why they believed they could. And based on those criteria, um, and, the, and the, we used the design process as an integrator. So we brought people together from all four organizations to serve on a very intensive five-month design team. Uh, and in the process of, of building their future together, Walls broke down, relationships got built, trust was established, and they co-created and co-authored their future together in a way that, that built trust. They could then turn and be ambassadors back to their own four organizations and help others come along who were distrustful, who were um, cynical, and help them see a future that could be there. And how did the um, CEO's role change as a result of this process? Because I imagine that the CEO is probably very defensive and very, as you put it, belligerent or, or aggressive in the initial meeting because he was under a lot of pressure. And then when he called you back later that night, to me that signaled that he was open to being influenced by what you brought. Um, he was, and I, I, I you know, which surprised me, and um, he because he has a, he was a very tough, pushful leader. He had lots of ambitions, but and lots of pressures. But he was he's one of the most. Um, he, first of all, he's he's just wicked smart. He's a brilliant man, and he but he worked. He got some really really in the diagnostic work. He got some very very hard feedback, some very difficult feedback to hear. But he worked harder at being a CEO, which he'd never done. He'd never done at this scale before. It was mm -hmm. He'd done work in startups, he'd done work in financial services and funding, but he'd never done this before. And he worked so hard 
at his CEO-ness. He really wanted to get it right. And he, I was impressed with how much he invested in adapting his behavior, communicating differently, letting go of control and, st- and, and raising his altitude and letting the organization design thrive. It was, it was really fa- fabulous to watch. He, I was very impressed with how hard he worked. Um, and I'm just going to call this out to everyone listening, that in your organizations, it's crucial for the top leaders to be vulnerable to those changes and to show that they're making efforts and to, they themselves, um, put in the hard work. Because there's nothing that will motivate others to do that the way that seeing a top leader making changes to their behavior, the way that they lead meetings, the way that they interact with their direct reports, that type of behavior does so much to leverage the input of a good consultant company. Wouldn't you agree with that, Ron? I would totally agree with that. I think that we, we I think one of the hardest transitional points, and we learned this in our research, when executives grow into broader purchase, or even, even as, as far as the C-suite goes, they do not realize that their life is now playing out on the jumbotron. Mm. They need to behave as if everything they're doing and saying has a megaphone strapped to their mouth 24-7. And they don't appreciate the cues people take from them, you, you, there's no such thing as casual conversation. You cannot no. walk into the theater and raise your eyebrow without somebody attaching meeting to it. You could, you, if you leave your office and walking fast uh, away from your office, somebody assumes it's an emergency. You may just have to go to the bathroom. But people attach meaning to everything you do and say and everything you do and don't say. And that's just part of the job of being a bigger-than-life leader. And it's for many leaders, to your point, Bill, that your, your authenticity, your vulnerability, your genuineness are one of the best disarmers of the concoctions of you, of the many versions of you that are inevitably going to exist out there. And the folklore people are going to create about your behavior. And you're never going to control all of that. That's just part of the deal of being a leader that has broad influence. But you can certainly stave off some of the toxic consequences of that by making sure people know you and know who you are and know your intentions. Lead out loud more often. Um, talk about what's important to you. Talk about the reasons behind your decisions and let them see who you are. That's right. And I think to expand on that, what you're saying is don't leave it to them to make their conjectures, the people who are in your company. You've got to interject and share explicitly far more than you expect your reasons for making things happen, your decisions as to why to pursue certain projects, initiatives, or markets so that you're supplying your story and not leaving it for people to make up out of their own hallucinations, imaginations, and concerns. Exactly. Exactly. So, Ron, you talk about in Rising to Power a diagram, the ascend, adjust, assert, and affect, which helps people who are taking on greater responsibility to look at this as a model. Can you give me an overview of how that works as if you're explaining it to a new executive engagement? As you plan and try and navigate your ascent, um, there are predictable phases. There are predictable things you'll experience. Not always in that order, not always that cleanly, but you know, you, there's always an altitude sickness. There's always some disorienting reality that suddenly you're at a higher perch with more influence, more resources, more direct reports, more financial responsibilities. And, and then the expectations of you are ambiguous in that the results you're achieving are longer term, your, the tangibility of your outcomes are, are, decreases, and the ambiguity of your work increases. Your political landscape is different now, that your you know, people who, who were your peers are now your direct reports, people who are your bosses are now your peers. There's a whole reorient of your, reorient of your relational structure. There's now the sense to, to assert your will differently, to actually you know, use power for greater good, but first you have to decide you want to use it. 
Um, so there are, there are predictable you know, adaptations to the journey up that you can begin making in a much more gradual, elegant way than having it to be this tumultuous seismic event. Um, and so the, the, the diagram is really meant to sort of, sort of make the predictability of the phases more clear, not necessarily, it's not really a roadmap. It's, it also helps you, as you were saying, predictable, uncover some of the things that might be hidden so that you can anticipate them, head them off, and deal with them better because you've prepared yourself for knowing that this is a likely event to occur. So I, I think that there's value in that to be able to see that, that based upon other people's experiences, these are things that typically happen. And some of them are inevitable, and some of them happen in different ways, depending on the political context or the growth, growth context or the size of your organization, or even sometimes the industry. But to simply say, hey, you're not crazy, right? You're, you're not losing your mind. Your people are looking at you funny now. People who used to have beers with, people who used to, you know, uh, who used to give you information readily now are hesitant to, people who you used to be buddies with now want favors from you, people who your bosses are now testing you, they now see you as a rival. You know, all, those, all those dynamics are real. You're not crazy. You're sitting in meetings wondering what people are talking about. There seems to be a new code language for certain things. And this happens at organizations that don't have to be corporate America. You've seen this occur at different levels, haven't you? Oh my gosh, it's, it's uh, universities, it's community... <laughs> It's, it's your local Little League team. It's your family. And, and any, any place you put up four walls on a roof and put, put human beings inside of it, this stuff happens. Because people, everybody's going to jockey for power. Everybody's going to jockey for influence. Somebody has to make decisions. Someone's going to be disappointed by those decisions. There's inevitability in any group setting or set of people uh, come together and try and, you know, try and uh, you know, create human endeavor at scale. Mm. Okay, so I think that's fair that we restrict the conversation to human beings. I think that's a great starting point. <laughs> because as human beings of all cultures, all races, all generations, all have these power dynamics because they're looking to get needs met that may or may not be appropriate within a corporate context. We all, I mean, I think we all come readily wired to want our individuality noticed, and we all want community and intimacy with other people, right? There's that me, we tug of war inside all of us and great leaders understand how to balance the dynamics that allow others to you know set themselves apart and be distinguished by their own gifts and contributions but also to participate in creating something bigger than themselves mm. I've, I've always seen it come back to maslow's hierarchy and just because you're at a higher level of sophistication better dressed <laughs> it, it all comes down to getting those needs met and elevating um, some of those needs because you've taken care of some of the basic needs. Now it becomes a much more refined dance or struggle because you're dealing with other people who are looking to get those higher level needs met. And, and some, for some people, Bill, those are not needs that are readily apparent. Some people don't have no. that emotional intelligence. They're not quite attuned to their own or other people's needs, or they dismiss them. They don't necessarily think that, that it's part of their job to consider those needs, which of course they do at their own peril. Um, but that's just the reality of many human beings, you know, in their, you know, being emotionally stunted in their own growth. Mm. Let's talk about um, some of the factors that isolate leaders. People on the outside, they marvel, they admire, and perhaps even envy those in senior leadership positions. And you've been on the inside and heard directly that it's not all first-class travel and corner offices with a view. What are some of the, the risks of people who get into leadership positions about isolating themselves that they could look at and perhaps relate to 
that may be impairing their ability to be effective? You know, I think from, I, when I think about all the darts people throw at highly compensated executives, and some of them are pompous morons and they deserve those darts, but just because they're highly compensated or, um, you know, look to have the appearance of privileges, um, well, I never, I never share those efforts because I know behind the scenes how much suffering, you know, any leader that wants to do it, do it well will suffer. The executive roles are ruthlessly unforgiving, publicly painful, often shaming, high risk jobs without, it's like, a, it's a, it's a high wire act without a net and you privately suffer. Everything is your fault that goes wrong and nothing that goes well is given credit to you. And so if you're willing to, t- if you're willing to take on those kinds of roles or you're aspiring to, you better know why you want them. Because if you're looking at all the glamour aspects and the, the sort of the power and financial and whatever other perks you think come with those jobs, as your primary motivator, you really need to think again because you're going to be highly disappointed and shocked at, at uh, and, and I mean, every executive I've ever coached or consulted with has that moment of buyer's remorse where they're like, what was I thinking? What did I get myself into here? They didn't tell me. And that's just, you, you have to get through that to get to the place where you, you, which is why whenever I'm working with executives who are considering or startup companies who are considering acquiring something or you know, any kind of scalability, I always ask them, do you know why you want this? And let's talk about all the things that could and probably will be part of the things you're not considering now because you have deal fever or because you, you know, your mind is a frenzy with, you know, desire for the, the upside here. Let's talk about how this is going to hurt and get, get clear about that so that when that happens, not if, you're not going, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, you, you can remind yourself about the fact that you chose this and you chose it for the good and the bad. When people are about to take on a position like this and they're considering it, how could they give themselves a gut check the way that certainly you or your consultants would do in a much more effective and comprehensive way, but what is a way that they can look at this and be able to see maybe reveal a couple of their blind spots or biases that are preventing them from seeing either some of the upsides or downsides of this? Well, certainly get feedback, right? I mean, do not make this decision on your own. You need to involve those close to you, who those know you. They know you for your good strengths and they know you for your warts. Make sure they are giving you honest feedback. Make sure that you're getting calibrated against does does what you're considering um, allow you to thrive, where, get, get clear on the risks, go ask, you know, behind the scenes questions about the environment and get, get, get the feedback. Uh, otherwise, you, you're making the decision in a vacuum. You've got to have calibration. The second one is, at, you know, consider what would happen if you didn't make the choice. I mean, if you didn't, if you, could you walk away from the opportunity in a way that you'd feel peaceful about or would it just, would you ache with regret? Um, because you're going to feel at some point a moment of regret having done it or having not done it, which regret's going to cause you more pain and which regret feels more permanent because that will give you also a clue into how badly you really want it. Um, a lot of times when you get on the, on the conveyor belt of considering opportunities, there's this sunk cost mentality of feeling like I've, I, you know, I now need to, I've now engaged in this consideration. I need to follow it through. And so this almost this cruise control takes over your brain and your emotions and you start getting this false sense of security and this false sense of conclusion and you, you get basically it's confirming confirmatory bias right. where you, you start leaning toward the fact that this makes sense. And so your ability to test all the assumptions you need to test about why it could be a disaster go away. 
Ron, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Sure. All right. Tell me, what are some of the key components of your routine for daily success? One of them is uh, making sure I, when I do my emails and when I don't, right? We all get 500 emails a day. I, I, I pocket certain times a day for that so I don't get consumed in it. Um, from my from my own values point of view, I begin every day with a really fun ritual that helps me remember to be grateful. Um, I all the down the conference room of our offices where our coffee stuff is. All of my coffee mugs there uh, come from all over the world, uh, from different experiences of different friends and different seasons of my life. And whenever I choose that coffee mug, it causes me to think of somebody, think of why they're important to me, remember to be grateful for them. And so it, for me, it's like I'm having coffee with them. How nice. And it's a great way for me to start my day, reminding, reminding myself that there's more of a story than just whatever's in my inbox or whatever clients I have to see that day. And I have a new dog. We have a new puppy. Oh. And so making sure that all the endorphins, we, we got him to generate inside of us uh, and all the joy and love we get to share with him. I, I make sure I partake of some part of that before he goes to bed. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's largely up to him as well as you choosing it. Dogs are wonderful for bringing that energy into people's lives, I think. Yep. Mm. So what's uh, one of your favorite ways to get unstuck? Do you have a tool or system used for staying on track and productive? For me, for me stuck means overwhelmed, too much priorities. Um, when, it's, when it's emotionally stuck, when I'm frustrated or discouraged or feeling like, you know, I've that. I have more brick prints in my forehead from the same wall than I want. <laughs> For me, it's a, it's a step back, reflect, you know, meditate, pray, you know, be, be mindful mm -hmm. um, and ask for help, which I'm not as good at as my friends would probably want me to be, but I need to go get perspective because usually if I'm feeling a sense of being on a treadmill, it means I've lost, I've lost, a, I've lost reality in terms of what's true. And I'm concocting a story in my head that may or may not reflect the truth or all of the truth. And, you know, we all been, we've all been on those rabbit holes and spiraling down out of a sense of perspective. And so I, I know that if I, ling if I linger there too long, that's not helpful, so. And what would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year or so that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Huh, stopped. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, you'd have to check with people in my life to see if they, they would actually have stopped it. I've certainly curtailed it. Uh, so I'm just going to call it whining. Um, you know, there's, there were certain aspects of my work that were becoming very frustrating uh, in my firm. Things I wanted to be different, things we tried to make change on in my firm and you know, it wasn't going well. I, and I needed to sort of step back and get a breath because the, the, my whining and complaining and frustrations were becoming problematic. And I needed to, again, get perspective. And so I've you know, made peace with the great things about these issues that still are upsides and, down, and made peace with the, part, the parts that are probably never going to change. And decided to say, okay, let, let the serenity prayer be true. Control what you can, let go of what you can't. Yes. Um, and I, and I, so now <laughs> would all the people in my community and my friends or whatever say, I've actually stopped that, that I don't, I don't know. <laughs> We'd have to check. I feel like it's certainly greatly reduced. When I'm feeling overwhelmed or when I'm feeling like things just aren't turning out the way that I wish them to be, whether it's a client project or a conversation or relationship, I step back and say to myself, they're this way because I've made choices. You know, I've, I've chosen to be in this situation. I've chosen to go this far. I've chosen to make this decision. And if I don't like how it's turning out, I need to take responsibility and make a different decision. 
and that often makes me feel like I've, I've got more control, even in a situation where things are are overwhelming. So true, Bill, so true. What would you say is, back to the topic of rising again, what would you say is one of the most underappreciated competencies of being an effective or high-performing executive that you've observed? Gratitude and, and, and respect and, and a way of showing gratitude. So it's not the thanks attaboy, because that's usually cheap. And one of the things I always ask people when I'm speaking about leadership to an audience is, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever received a compliment from your boss and been insulted by it. Hmm. And half the room raises their hands. Um, and we talk about wh- why do those compliments, well-intended that we know that them to be, feel so offensive? Because they, they feel disingenuous, they feel uninformed, they feel obligatory. And one of the greatest things leaders can do to show their gratitude is simply ask for the story. Tell, tell me how you did that. And let people come to life telling you about their contributions. Because when, you, when gratitude is an acknowledgement that the contribution is, a, is an extension of the contributor, people feel seen, they feel understood, mm-hmm. and, they feel, and, they, and they become more loyal. And it's such a simple social gratitude that takes time and, and attention um, that most leaders just fail to offer. It's so powerful, too, because the, the person asking is saying, this is important enough, I really want to hear the whole story. I love that. And then you have to actually listen to it. Right. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I, had so, I had so many people who tried that technique, and when they tell me why it doesn't work, I'm like, well, you, you, you asked for the story, but then you cut it short. You, you broke eye the, contact and, made, and started returning emails. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I heard the worst story last night. I was on a call with a client in India at 11 p.m. last night, and he was telling me a story about a coach he was considering working with who, who, who said, tell me, who, who was like trying to get some good data about him and said, tell me your life story. Oh, my gosh. Right. So in about 18 minutes in, the coach goes, okay, that's all I want. That's, let's, move, let's move on. <laughs> I'm just, every orifice in me is cringy. Like, no, he did not. No, he did not. Someone just clearly taught him, you know, get backstory. It's good data. And it sounds like you really are, like, have some neuroscience background. But you, you, when you ask somebody to tell them their background story, you, you can't put a stopwatch on. <laughs> <laughs> or at least frame it and say, give me the 10-minute version of your life story. <laughs> so I have to tell you, Ron, this has been such a treat having you on. And I want to appreciate you for your contributions to my quest for the best. You've, you've shared some great ideas with us in so many areas. And... I just want to want you to know that I think that it makes a world of difference for people to understand that these stories and principles come out of the trenches. They're from over 2,600 and, and you know, before the show, you told me it was over 3,000 assessments and interviews that you've done that you've studied in order to come up with these ideas. You've talked about how people are still using the two least reliable ways of hiring executives, the interview and the resume. And we're, people are just wed to it, and it sets people up for, for disaster. We've talked about how people make um, decisions and back things based on partial truths and how that often leads to problems, often, if not always. And the importance of living their life as an executive, as a senior executive within an organization, knowing that you're living your life as if it's on a jumbotron and, and every decision, verbal, every action, verbal and nonverbal, has an impact on your organization. 
Um, can you tell us how we can find out more about you, the book, and your work online? So um, I love to keep the conversation going with your listeners. Come visit us at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. We have a free ebook for you on leading transformation. So if you have some major change of what you have to get done, it's leading transformation in organizations. And if you come to www.navalent.com slash transformation, you can get that free ebook. And Ron, what would you like people to be thinking about in terms of rising to power? So the interesting thing about our research was that when we studied the the dynamic of power, um, we assumed the greatest abuse of that power would be for self-indulgence and, you know, personal or immoral gain. Um, But that wasn't the case. The greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People too afraid to use it. We all have sources of power we don't realize in the information we have and the relationships we have and the positions we hold, regardless of what you think. And use that power for good. Find ways to make the, the community you're in more just. Find ways to help people discover their greatest selves. Find ways to change perspectives or open people's minds with your information. You know, you, your power is important. Use it. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.